There is a point, I think, in every believer's life when they realize that following the Lord is incompatible with certain other things in their life. Now, a new Christian probably doesn't get that. A a new Christian is, is capable probably of loving the Lord and cherishing many other harmful loyalties, affections, and allegiances. But if that person's truly saved, as that person matures, he or she will inevitably realize that God is a jealous God, that he cannot be a love or a priority or a focus. He he must be our chief, sole, singular focus, love, and loyalty. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. As a believer matures, he or she begins to realize that God cannot be a priority. He has to be the priority. That's true in the Old Testament, just as it is in the New. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 35. We remember that Jacob has been taking his time in making his way towards Bethel. He took some time to establish a base for his shepherding business in Succoth, and then some more time setting up a business outlet in Shechem. He's moving in the right direction, but he's not moving very fast. And that delay proves costly for his family. In verse 1, God gets him moving again in the right direction. Hear now the word of the Lord. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then... Let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. It seems likely that these foreign gods that are mentioned here were probably items seized in the raid and destruction of Shechem in the previous chapter. They may also have included the idols that Rachel stole from her father. Wherever they came from, Jacob is smart enough to realize that they need to be put away. One cannot serve God, El Shaddai, Yahweh God, and keep company with petty idols. Victor Hamilton puts it this way. He says, he, Jacob intuitively senses that the continued presence of these gods is irreconcilable with the new life he has found in Yahweh. The whole incident must be read as an illustration of Jacob's religious maturation. I think that's a very useful statement. There is a point, I think, in every believer's life when they realize that following the Lord is incompatible with certain other things in their life. Now, a new Christian probably doesn't get that. A new Christian is is capable probably of loving the Lord and cherishing many other harmful loyalties, affections, and allegiances. But if that person's truly saved, as that person matures, he or she will inevitably realize that God is a jealous God, that he cannot be a love or a priority or a focus. He he must be our chief, 
soul, singular, focus, love, and loyalty. Jesus said that. He said in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It says, you cannot serve God and money in the same chapter. Luke 9, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Don't even let your loyalties to your dead father get in the way of your loyalty to me. Jesus demanded absolute soul, uncontested loyalty because he was God and God doesn't change. Old Testament and new, this is who he is. And, and Jacob, as Hamilton says, intuitively knew that. The new believer under the operation of the Holy Spirit comes to intuitively know that as well. Thanks be to God. Verse 5 says, And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. Now, remember, Jacob was concerned that having massacred the people of Shechem, they would soon face a coalition of forces from neighboring towns and tribes. Here we see why that did not happen. A terror from God fell on those people. Somehow God made it clear to them that they were not to touch Jacob and his family. Maybe he gave them dreams, as he had done to Laban in chapter 31. We don't know. We just know that in some way these people come to understand that you can't curse what God is blessing. You can't fight what God is defending. Right? Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, as for Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, it's a bit of a confusion as to why her death is mentioned here and not Rebecca's. It is an odd thing that Rebecca's death and burial isn't mentioned. The suggestion of most commentators is that she had already died uh, before, long before Jacob returned to the land, and that Deborah, in a sense, is the last living link to Rebecca. That is probably true. And it is interesting, difficult, uh, hard, but true uh, that Rebecca never did see her beloved son again. The price she paid for initiating the deception of her husband was that she never saw her son again. Verse 9 goes on to say, God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Paden Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in that place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. 
And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. The juxtaposition of these two paragraphs in the narrative is really interesting to me. In verses 9 to 15, God reiterates his promises and reaffirms his blessing upon Jacob. All all the principal elements are there. There's a promise of many children, nations, even in kings. There is the promise of land. And also, I think you could say the implied promise of intimacy with God. God has just appeared to him. Note that, right? God didn't just speak these affirmations. He didn't give Jacob a dream or cause him to hear a voice. He appeared to him. So this is encouraging. This is empowering stuff. And then in the next paragraph, Jacob experiences the worst day of his entire life. His beloved Rachel dies in childbirth. How does that all go together? How can Jacob be God's chosen one? How can he be blessed and loved and cherished? And and yet, in the next paragraph, lose the person he loved the most in all the world? How can that be? But that's faith, isn't it? Biblical faith, anyway. There is no health and wealth gospel in the Bible. There is the promise of blessing, but there is also the experience of pain. That's why they call it faith, because it sure isn't sight. Now, as for the name of the son born to Rachel, we see something of Jacob's maturity in that. Rachel called him Ben-Oni, which we think means son of my sorrow. But Jacob changes his name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand or son of my strength. In chapter 44, verse 20, he's called son of my old age. So Jacob somehow is able to see him as a gift, as a blessing, even though he came into the world through horrible suffering, pain, and loss. That is faith. Faith isn't pretending that you never get sick. Faith isn't naming and claiming things that God never promised to give you. Faith isn't pretending that we can twist God's arm by jumping up and down or by shouting at the heavens. Faith is about seeing the purpose and power of God, even in our pain. That's faith. That's mature biblical faith. And we see it here in Brother Jacob. Jacob really is a new man. But his family is still a terrible mess. And we see that in the next paragraph, starting at verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. It is hard to imagine how shocking this must have been for Jacob, particularly as it followed hard on the heels of the death of his beloved Rachel. How could Reuben do this? Why would Reuben do this? There are three main reasons suggested by biblical commentators. The first, of course, is the most obvious. Perhaps it was just an act of of lust, an act of sexual betrayal, born of passion, right? Bilhah was older than Reuben, but such things have been known to happen. We read about female high school teachers seducing teenage students all the time. We're always shocked by these stories, but in truth, these sorts of incidents are as old as time. However, 
most commentators do not see this as merely an act of uncontrolled lust. Most of them understand this as an intentional act on Reuben's part. Some see this as an attempt to supplant Jacob as the head of the family. Jacob lost credibility with his sons, it is suggested, by his failure to respond to the rape of Dinah. Reuben here, by sleeping with his father's concubine, makes a play for the throne, you might say. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, sleeping with the concubine of the king, of the leader, was understood as making a play for the throne. You remember Abner sleeping with the concubine of Saul in 2 Samuel 3.7, or Absalom sleeping with his father David's concubines in 2 Samuel 16.20-22. So, that could be it. But the best explanation is also the oldest. The Jews have long taught that what Reuben was doing here was protecting his mother. The Jews teach that Reuben was always jealous on behalf of his mother, Leah. He felt she had been slighted by Rachel and never treated as she was due. She was, after all, the senior wife. And so here, Reuben violates Bilhah, Rachel's concubine, so that she could not overtake Leah as first wife of Jacob. Bilhah would now be a living widow, like the concubines of David in 2 Samuel 16. She would likely never sleep with her husband again, and thus she would immediately drop to the bottom of the hierarchy of wives, with Leah secure at the top. That is almost certainly what is happening here, and it is yet another peg in the biblical argument against polygamy. This is the sort of distasteful nonsense that happens when you introduce rivalry into the most intimate human relationships. Verse 22 continues, Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him and paid in Aram. With the birth of Benjamin, the narrative of Jacob's family reaches a turning point. Jacob begins to fade into the background, and his sons take center stage. That there are twelve sons, note that Reuben is still listed despite his outrageous sin, is seen as significant by most Christian commentators. Derek Kidner, for example, says throughout the Old Testament and the New, twelve will be the number symbolizing the whole Israel of God. He cross-references Revelation 21, 12, and 14, the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles, close quote. Now, we made mention of that in our podcast series on the book of Revelation. Our story concludes in verses 27 to 29. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now, the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. Jacob is blessed. Jacob is reconciled to his brother, but Jacob is dealing with sorrow in his heart and trouble in his home. But God is with him. Truly, this man is a picture and a portrait of the life of faith. Thanks be to God. And chapter 35 was a relatively short chapter, so we're going to transition right into chapter 36 today. Pastor Paul, let's hand it right back over to you. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 36. 
This is the third time so far in our journey through Genesis where we have found ourselves reading a chapter that is probably not on anyone's top 10 list in terms of favorite passages in the Bible. In fact, in many Bible reading plans, it is paired with the previous chapter, not because it is short, but because it is assumed that it is not sufficiently edifying to be offered as your sole spiritual meal of the day. Now, I think it is true that some chapters are more edifying than others. All chapters are equally inspired, but some chapters are more immediately helpful and encouraging than others. Nevertheless, these sorts of chapters are useful. When we went through one of these sorts of chapters back in chapter 10, I told you about an article written by Colin Smith called Five Reasons We Should Love the Genealogies of the Bible. Now, I don't know whether you will love this chapter or not, but let me remind you of what Smith said. He said that we should love genealogies, first of all, because biblical genealogies show that God cares about history. Genealogies document actual history and illustrate that the Bible is historically rooted. And I think that's important. He says, secondly, we should love genealogies because biblical genealogies show that God interacts with real people. This means that each person that we see mentioned in Scripture is a living, breathing human being, just like us. Biblical characters like Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus all lived on the earth and breathed the same air that we breathe today. Thirdly, Smith says that we should love genealogies because biblical genealogies show that God can use imperfect people for his purposes. And we've commented on this many times. The gospel is a story told inside human stories with all the warts, failures, and frustrations left unedited. That's very important. Very helpful for us to see that. Fourthly, Smith says that we should love genealogies because biblical genealogies show that God cares about families. God doesn't work with people in general. He works with families in specific. That's one of the major themes in the book of Genesis. And then lastly, Smith says that we should love genealogies because the genealogy of Jesus means that God understands our situation. Jesus entered into a real human story, this human story. So it's worth reminding ourselves of the details. With all of that being said, hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Oholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zeboin, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basemath bore Reuel, and Oholibama bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his daughters, his sons, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So, Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. It looks here like Esau has now reconciled himself to the fact 
that the promise and purpose of God would run through brother Jacob. He removes himself from Canaan and settles in Seir, or what became known as Edom. He moves out expressly to leave room for Jacob. Notice that they were both increasing. God is blessing Esau too, but in a different way and now in a different place. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Verse 9 says, These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Reuel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatim, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. Now, interestingly, in verse 11, we read of an Eliphaz who had a son named Teman. That's one of the main reasons, actually, that many scholars have for believing that the story of Job likely took place in the land of Edom around the time of Joseph. In the story of Job, one of the main characters is called Eliphaz the Temanite, meaning he was probably a great-grandson of Esau. Again, there are all kinds of interesting little details and hidden gems in these generally less exciting genealogies. Verse 13 says, These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibuin, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. By the way, if you never read genealogies, you would never get to say a name like Oholibamah. Verse 15, These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs, Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gadam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz and the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's sons. The chiefs, Nahath, Zerah, Shema, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Oholibama, Esau's wife. The chiefs, Jeush, Jalam, Korah. These are the chiefs born of Oholibama, the daughter of Ana, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom. And these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Heman, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Manahath, Abel, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aon, Anna, he is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon, and Oholibama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hamdan, Ishban, Ithran, and Kiran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chiefs by chief in the land of Seir.
These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. Bela died, and Zobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samlai of Masrika reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shal of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shal died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pa, his wife's name, Mehetabel, the daughter of Matrid, daughter of Mezahab. Now, it's interesting to note here that none of these kings appears to be the son of the king that came before him. From that, scholars wonder whether these early kings were elected, or whether they emerged through some sort of demonstrated skill and bravery in the field of battle. We don't know, but it's just interesting to note that not everybody in the region did kingship the same way. Verse 40 says, These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places, by their names, the chiefs, Timnah, Alveh, Jathoth, O Holy Bama, Elah, Penon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Derek Kidner says about this chapter, After the usual pattern in Genesis, where a new stage of the story is to be introduced, the record of the collateral branch of the family is first completed, before the main thread of events is picked up again. This chapter clears the ground for the final section of the book. And the final section of this book deals with the story of Joseph. We'll turn our attention to that story tomorrow in our next episode of Into the Word. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, you mentioned in that episode that one of the purposes for all of these genealogies in the Bible is to remind us that God works out his purposes through real human stories. Adam, Noah, Abraham, and Jacob, these are real historical characters, even though their stories function in a paradigmatic sense. But what if a person doesn't believe that these people ever really existed? Could they still benefit from what these stories teach about life and faith generally? Well, I suppose on one level they could. I learn things every time I read through Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia. So, of course, we can learn things, but I think we would miss some pretty important things as well. The Bible is making the claim that God is who he reveals himself to be through his saving works of redemption in human history. He is the God of Noah and the Ark. He is the God of Moses and the Exodus. And ultimately, he is the God of Jesus Christ on the cross. So I do think it matters whether or not you believe that these people really existed. The Bible says they existed, and of course, Jesus says they existed. Jesus refers to Abraham and to Noah and to Jacob. So if you're any kind of Christian, I think you have to take that seriously. Jesus believed that there was a guy named Noah and that there was a flood in his day. He took that story seriously, not just as a pattern or as an illustration of faith. He took that story seriously as a redemptive event that really happened. 
And so I am inclined to accept that at face value as someone who has put his faith in Jesus. Mm, Yeah, I'll second that. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. See you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.